Our scripture reading for the sermon is Psalm 98. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made known His salvation. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and, all, and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Pray with me. Father, as we come into your presence, we come before your word that you have given to us and preserved for us. And by your spirit, you open it to us this day. Open our hearts that we might see and taste the wonder and the beauty of the one to whom we belong by faith. The one who made this world, who made us for himself and calls us into that worship this day. Meet us, teach us, form us. And send us through Christ, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I've actually not had a chance to uh, report back or even say thank you for your prayers and questions about a trip that uh, I took, took out on a few weeks ago now. Uh, three weeks, uh, two in Spain and one in Scotland. But thank you for your prayers. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a window into at least part of that trip today. <clears throat> As... Um, as I discovered, when we got off plane from Spain to Scotland at the beginning of June, I, it dawned on me, it became apparent very quickly, <clears throat> that we were arriving, to, our arrival coincided with the celebration of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee. It was a crowded airport. And as we <clears throat> sat upon the next week of doing a very varied things, one of those included a garden party. I wasn't on my calendar, a garden party in Scotland celebrating, among other things, including our daughter's return to Scotland. She was with us. That was actually the occasion, but the event became centered around the Queen's Jubilee celebration. That celebration, by the way, <clears throat> marked the 70th year of the Queen's coronation. That's what platinum means, I learned. Uh, 70 years ago was when Queen Elizabeth ascended the throne at age 25 upon the death of her father, George VI. And it was a year later that she was actually crowned and installed in that role, giving the land a year to mourn, but also a year to prepare and prepare they did. As she was installed, coronated, crowned and installed in that role, 8,000 guests 
from across the Commonwealth of Nations, 56 member states at that time, the vast majority of which were former territories of the British Empire. It was estimated that over 20 million people viewed this event worldwide on their brand new television sets. People rented televisions to watch this worldwide event. The procession, it was remarkably orchestrated and done. It included the various high commissioners of the Commonwealth carrying banners, uh, <coughs> bearing the shields of the coats of arms of their respective nations. They moved inside the abbey, up the central aisle, and through the choir to the stage as the choirs sang, I was glad, an imperial setting of selected verses from Psalm 122. A grand display. But nothing, nothing like the display that we find in Psalm 98. During the service, Elizabeth took an oath. She was anointed with holy oil, invested with robes and regalia, crowned the Queen of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. Celebrations took place all across the realms of the Commonwealth. A world watched on in awe, but an event that pales in comparison to what we have before us today. As Ben mentioned, <clears throat> this Psalm 98 is the basis of Isaac Watts' Joy to the World. That psalm and that hymn have come to be associated with Christmas, like Psalm 96, and later on today, see if you can find the links and comparisons, the overlap between Psalm 96 and Psalm 98 today. But that association with Christmas is not inappropriate, provided it is clear that the coming of Jesus as the Davidic king, you know that's who he was and is, the Davidic king, who will bring light to the Gentiles, is what establishes the connection. The Davidic king that this psalm is about is the one that will bring light to the Gentiles. So why do we need to hear that in July? We may sing it again in December. There's a reason we need to ponder and consider what Psalm 98 is about in July. Because from where we sit... This world is spinning out of control. I don't need to convince you of that. You've been watching the news and there's more news tomorrow. I don't know what that's going to hold, but, but there will be an element of it, I can assure all of us, that will appear as if the world is spinning out of control. And we need to hear something clearly. And we need to leave here with an assurance that the world is not spinning out of control. This is my father's world. He owns it. He will take it because he has taken it. That's what's before us. It's actually a song. So we could sing Psalm 98. It's a song with three stanzas, stanzas, and your Bible might give you more clues than the printed text in the bulletin does. Some Bibles will have a little space between some of the verses, and some Bibles will have paragraph markers, those little symbols, uh, the backwards P, bolded, 
you'll see those in verses 1, 4, and 7. Because those are the three stanzas. And if, and if the paragraph markers aren't there, you'd probably be able to figure that's it anyway. Because each one begins with a call to sing. Three times, you, we, are called to sing and to make a joyful noise. Those are the three stanzas. And what we're going to see as we work our way through the three stanzas, we're going to see what God has done for His people. We're going to see what that means for the nations. And then finally, we're going to see why all the world can rejoice. First, what God has done for the people. Uh, Israel is embedded here. It's a, they're the ones addressed. They're the ones talked about. The first block, the first stanza is about Israel, God's people. It began with a promise to Abraham, and then it gets fleshed out as we, as we see. But it begins with this. O Israel, sing to the Lord a new song. That's where it starts. That's where we're invited and called in and brought into this is to sing a new song. We take up these words to sing a new song. Last year, if you can trust the internet, last year over 60,000 new songs were uploaded to Spotify every day. 60,000 songs every day. Somebody besides me did the math. That's almost 22 million tracks per year, nearly one per second. New songs coming faster than we can breathe. New songs. Spotify has ended up with a database of 82 million songs. But here we're called to sing a new one. With 82 million available, why do we need one more? (laughs) Why do we need a new song? Here's the reason. Because when the scriptures use the term new song, they're referring to a fresh experience of God's grace in our lives. By the way, there's nothing more than you will need today or me than a fresh experience of God's grace. So we're called to sing a new song. And if we're not sure why or how we get there, the psalm helps us because he comes right out of the gate writing and he gives you and me six reasons. Here are six reasons. And frankly, sometimes when I show up for worship, true confessions, I need some help. I'm not always ready to get there with you or even lead you there. I'm not always ready. And the Psalms, this one in particular, seems to get that. And says, here are six reasons, Tony. Here are six reasons, Cornerstone, for you to sing a new song. You find two in each verse. The first one, verse two, verse one. For he has done marvelous things. For, there's the reason, right? Because, why? For, for he has done marvelous things. Marvelous That's not just things that are puzzling. Those are things that are staggering. Have you thought about that recently? The staggering things that God is doing, that He has done? The the things that sort of end up in involuntary praise. That's what wonderful means. Wonderful counselor. 
it's an involuntary praise. We, when we see him for who he is, when we see what he's doing, there's, there's praise that follows in an invo- almost involuntary way. He has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. For him, by the way. It didn't say for you, although it is. He has worked salvation for him. This is his purpose, his plan unfolding. He is the, the instigator. He is the designer. He is the executor. He is the, the one who administers and accomplishes this for his glory. Three, he has made known his salvation. It's not behind a curtain. It's not hidden away in some secret document. It's not a story that took place in a remote part of the world. No, he has revealed it. That's number four. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Five, he has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. And all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Those are intended to cascade over my soul and you. To to let those wash over us. One would be enough. But one after the other, the picture gets bigger and brighter. Bigger and brighter. And that's another thing that I need today. A bigger and a brighter and a fuller and a more accurate glimpse of the truth of who God is and what he has done. Oh, would that be what happens as we gather in worship here this day? That we would begin to see and to taste the fullness of what he has done for you. At the center of it is his steadfast love, his hesed, steadfast love. That's covenant language. This is a covenant-making God, and his covenant is on display, not only in your life, but for the world to see. It's not clear, and scholars debate what's behind Psalm 98, when, when they talk about, when the writer talks about the world has seen, his, holy, his, holy, his right hand and his holy arm have worked something. Uh, most likely, it's referring to the Exodus. Most people, scholars, tend to think that it's that. It's that. But you can make a good case that it's returned from Babylon. Because in that case, it was totally God's deliverance. In both cases, though, what we see is salvation revealed and salvation explained. That's what we have in these few verses here. But before we leave it, I want to ask you to think about the new song that can come from your lips and your heart. It might be that we look back at Exodus, the Exodus. We look at Babylonian captivity. Maybe what's most appropriate is that we look at our own versions of that. What God has delivered you from. The bondage, the slavery, the freedom that is yours in Christ. And for that to be the song that you sing today... And maybe it's, it's pushed forward or sped forward by Lamentations 3. The steadfast love of the Lord, what? Never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Let these, friends, wash over you. His mercies are yours. You can breathe. 
His mercies never end. He has accomplished salvation for you. The, the, the image of these first three verses is that God is a Savior. You see that word and that idea three times. When, when we read that it was seen by all the ends of the earth, that echoes language from Isaiah 52. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. And when we get to the New Testament, John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, that's who that is. He takes those words from Isaiah and applies them to the work and the person of Jesus, the one who comes to redeem, who, who is our salvation. That's what God has done for his people. What does that mean for the nations? I mean, that's a fair question. In fact, that is the question that you hear these days. We, don't we hear people talk about, well, that is their faith for them, and I'm over here, it has nothing to do with me. In fact, we're happy for what you believe, church. Just don't, don't, don't bother me with what I believe and how I'm living. As you read through Psalm 98, the nations are addressed repeatedly. They're addressed in all three stanzas, but they're the focal point of the second stanza where we read in verse 4, all the earth. That's who the psalm has in mind right there. All the earth. Not just a group of people that lived here and another group that lived there, but all the earth. That's who is engaged in stanza number 2. What do God's dealings with Israel have to do with anyone else? Well, follow the story, and what we find here in the second stanza is that nations, you too, have a joyful song to sing. There are things happening, there are things unfolding that create music in you. Uh, there's, there's this lavish description in the middle of that second stanza about that is just full of music. Uh, musical instruments, the lyre. Trumpets, horn, and then you add to that the human voice of melody, praise, and, and joyous praise. It's full of music, but what it begins with is this phrase, joyful noise. Now, some of us laugh about that, that we say, uh, well, I can't sing, but I can make a joyful noise. And if that's you, well, you're in good company. Uh, but that phrase is actually referring to something specific. Joyful noise was the spontaneous shout that might greet a king or a moment of victory. That's what that was. That's what that is. A joyful noise is what greets a king. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. To who? To the Lord. That L-O-R-D, capital L-O-R-D, that's, the, that's this, his covenant name, Yahweh. Make a joyful noise, nations of all the world, to the Lord, the true King. And sing your hearts out. And grab every instrument that you have and can find and can learn to play. And make a joyful noise before, verse 6, the King, the Lord. 
You see, here's what this means for the nations. It means you have a joyful song to sing, nations, because you have a rightful king to adore. That king that every king points to, that every king is a, is a poor image of. Those monarchs, those dictators, those people elected by the people or an electrical college or whatever else that puts those people in front to lead. They come up short. They always come up short. But, but you were made to be a part of his reign, the true king of kings. That's why nations, you sing, you reach for the trumpet, you reach for the horn, you reach for the lyre, and you make a joyful noise as the king takes his place. Which is why I would say the coronation of Elizabeth II was a pale picture of what this is about. There's a king who has come. There's a king in, his midst, in their midst, a king who is in his rightful place. And when he is on his throne, we find the things that we long for to be true. We see that in just a moment. It's for, it's for all the nations. Uh, I mentioned this was his, that covenant language, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. Well, it began with a promise to an individual, right? The promise to Abraham. And the promise to Abraham sounded like this. I will bless you, Abram, and I, will, and I will bless him and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is not just for you, Abram. It's not just for your people. That's where stanza one begins. But the second stanza expands. Because this is for the nations. That's why in Isaiah 49 we read this. God saying to his servant Israel, It is too light or small, too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. That's not enough. And to bring back the preserved of Israel. That's not what this is about. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is no provincial sectarian religious expression. This is the God who made this world, who enters the world to redeem the world, to restore the world. The nations, this is your hope. This is your song as well. Listen to Israel sing and join in. Grab your lute, your lyre, your trumpet, your horn, your banjo. <laughs> Grab it and join in and sing because this is for you. You have a joyful song to sing because you have a rightful king to adore. But we're not there, are we? <laughs> we don't see that. There's a third stanza. There's more to the story. There, there's reasons why all the world can rejoice and will one day. Keep that in mind. Because we don't see this lived out. In fact, we see a far cry from this as we read through tomorrow's news. But you need to remember, we need to remember that this is a, a psalm that has another day in mind 
that we join in now. And the world can rejoice today. The world will rejoice on a final day. Because one day, the wait will be over. The wait will be over. When you get to the third stanza, we've gone from Israel to the nations, and now we see the created order. Rivers, seas and hills, seas roaring, rivers clapping and hills singing, and all the world joins in. I'm going to guess you've spent at least a few days, maybe this summer, at a river, a sea, or maybe a hill or two. There's something about that created world that is life-giving to us, or at least restorative in some ways. That's where we go to rest. There's where we go to renew. It might be a river, it might be a stream, it might be a lake or a beach or a mountain. There's something there that is more than just life-giving. There's something when we get there that stirs us. There's something there that, that captures us. Jerome Stone is a seminary professor. <clears throat> He's a Unitarian, son of a Protestant pastor whose father taught him to respect other religions. There's no one true way. Consider all the various ways. And that led him down a path, a path that in 2008 led him to publish a book entitled Religious Naturalism Today, subtitled The Rebirth of a Forgotten Alternative. And this respect for other religions and this pathway into the world of nature was something that he responded to, to suggest and to, and to affirm that there is a religious path available to you without a supreme supernatural being. It was that the sea and the rivers and the hills captured his imagination. And read, as we read in Romans, rather than worshiping the creator, the invitation is to worship the creation. To look at that mountain, to look at that sea, and to bow down before it. That's completely backwards. Totally backwards. That's what C.S. Lewis observed when he wrote famously in Mere Christianity, a vague religion all about feeling God and nature and so on is so attractive. It's all thrills and no work, like watching the waves from the beach, but you will not get to Newfoundland by studying the Atlantic. And you will not get eternal life by simply feeling the presence of God in flowers or music. 
He's inviting us to recognize that rather than worshiping the creation, the creation itself worships the one who made it. That's what we see in stanza three. We see the sea roaring and all that fills it. We see rivers clapping and hills singing. Really? I would like to see that. (laughs) Is that really what's going to happen? Well, all I know is the Bible is always stretching our imagination to grasp a world that is not yet. It's inviting you, as, he, as Lewis says in the last battle, to find your place in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. And maybe it is true that seas will roar, that rivers will clap. Maybe that's just talking about the waves. But let them resound. The waves resounding, the hills singing, whatever that means and whatever that entails. It's the world coming to life. That's what it is. The reason that the world can rejoice is that the waiting will be over. This is how Paul puts it in Romans 8. For the creation waits. The creation waits and longs for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. We see that, don't we? As my friend Scotty Smith put it, this parsed world will be like paradise one day. Eden was just a preview. Dry and weary have expiration dates. The world will rejoice with the people of God, with the nations, as the created order comes to life. Nature will not come until its own, though, until man himself, its proper master, Genesis 1, is ruled with righteous reason and equity. The earth, the, when we read the, that notion of the, world, the Lord coming to judge the earth, the, the, the fuller picture of that is not simply what first comes to your mind when we hear the, and use the word judge, although that's an aspect and that's a true truth. But in this instance, the picture is God coming to rule, to sovereignly rule and order the things that are broken. The Lord comes to judge the earth, to bring life out of death, to bring light out of darkness, to bring flourishing out of anguishing. God's coming rule, His governing the world, is morally upright, it is just, it is straight. And that's what this world longs for. A reigning and ruling that is upright and just and straight. And in the God who made this world, that's what we find and that's what we get. And when the world finally sees... Morally upright, just, straight, rule, order. There's one response. Grab the horn. This is what we were made for. This is what we've been after.
And this is what we will find. All who dwell in it make a joyful noise. I mentioned that that joyful noise is the spontaneous shout that might greet a king. Remember? That's the word translated in Zechariah 9, shout aloud. Zechariah uses that word to describe the entrance of a king. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, joyful noise, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. This was fulfilled. That was fulfilled. That joyful noise that we will sing one day with the trees <laughs> is recognizing the entrance of the true king, the one who came into the world not to bring judgment, to, to bear judgment, yours. He is the one who bore our sins in his body on the tree, says Peter, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. The wounds of the king. By the wounds of the king, you have been healed. God says, Paul says about God, For our sake, God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That in him we might become the righteous of God. He came to bear judgment. And bearing your judgment... You become righteous in Him. And in that righteousness, with instruments tuned, we reach for the instruments and lift our voice and we sing a song. But we do not sing alone. Do you know that? It's not only with those that have gone before us and around the throne in heaven who, who join us in some fashion in our worship, but we have a worship leader, and his name is Jesus. Jesus sings these songs. He sang them about you as he entered Jerusalem, as he sang Psalm 98 and rehearsed it in his own heart and mind. And he leads us this day. The Queen's Platinum Jubilee started with a parade. 1,500 soldiers, officers, 400 musicians, 250 horses, 70 aircraft. Quite a display. And it ended with a concert. And on the stage with, were the figures like Paul McCartney and Eric Clapton and two members of the group, Queen, <laughs> singing hits that occurred during her 70-year reign. And the finale was, All You Need Is Love. Friends, that is the best the world has to offer as hope. All you need is love. But that won't get us there. It's like studying the Atlantic. And it won't get you to Newfoundland. 
And it won't get you eternal life by simply sensing the beauty of the world around you. But someone had to enter the ugliness of this world. Who himself was not attractive. Who bore your sin and mine. The true king. I hope you noticed as we went through this. That flash mob I was talking about. It starts with Israel. People of God and stanza one. Then it expands to the nations. And then the whole created order comes alive in song. That flash mob, you know, there's somebody over here stands to sing and then she joins him and then two people back there. And before you know it, the room is standing in this public space where we didn't see this coming. We don't see this coming. <laughs> but it's true. This is the true story. This is the story that you, you've never heard but longed to be true until you've heard it. The one who made authority and citizen himself. Why would all creation, things in heaven and on earth, rulers and authority and citizens of the world sing this song? Why would the shout of the planet rise in praise? Here's why. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who this is about. The one who made this world. The one who holds things together. The one who is the reason that the world has never spun out of control. Your world, your chaos, your trials and difficulties, they never spring out of control because he is at work. Come to him. Make a joyful noise. We sang it earlier. Jesus shall reign. Let every creature rise and bring peculiar honors to our king. Peculiar, not in the sense of strange. Peculiar in the sense of unique and personal. Bring yourself to him, the one who peculiarly loves you, uniquely so. He has a song that he sings over you. And today we join him singing to his praise and glory. The one who is true, the one who is lovely the one who is beautiful. Meet us here, we pray, Lord, as we sing, as we celebrate this table in a moment. Would you meet us here and stretch our imaginations once again, stretch our faith, establish our faith, build us up in our faith that we might sing, knowing that it is not about us, but it is about you. It's about your work for us that we take hold of today by faith. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.